I had told you that the main theme of 2 Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. And when we study the day of the Lord, it's going to use that term, the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. It's a huge study. If you want to spend some time looking back at every time the day of the Lord is brought up, when's the first time that it's brought up, how often is it said, you're going to find out some interesting things. You're going to find out that the day of the Lord depends a lot on its context. And that when you go all the way back to, the, the, to, to Exodus and you find Pharaoh's army meeting its end in the Red Sea, that they refer to that as the day of the Lord. And that becomes a type of what we see in the day of the Lord in the future. When the Bible says the day of the Lord, it means a day God is going to show up. And not a day that God is going to show up and say, hi, a day that God's going to show up and deal with things. That's the day of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, you come to these references where it talks about the day of the Lord in a grand sense. As if not, this is just one of the days of the Lord where God showed up and did something. But this is the day of the Lord when God will wrap everything up. The Bible tells us that that day is coming when God will wrap it all up. Let me give you just a couple of passages that help us understand the day of the Lord. Um, and, and these are both in the New Testament. Um, we could also go to Old Testament passages to talk about the day of the Lord. Uh, so first of all, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 the last book we covered, for you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. So to, and remember, the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were the first books written in the New Testament, written before the book of Mark. And Paul takes time to talk to them about the coming of the Lord, about the return of Jesus. Sometimes people will criticize us and Calvary Chapel in general as being obsessed with prophecy. I don't know that we are. About 25% of the Bible, maybe more, is prophecy. I don't know if we can be obsessed with it. If you're teaching through the Bible, you're going to cover chapters like we are covering today. And it's interesting to me that the first letter that we have of Paul writing, that he spoke to them about the coming of Christ, the gathering of us together with him, the rapture of the church, he spoke about all of these. Let me read you 2 Peter 3.10. And this is, again, thinking about the day of the Lord, what the Bible teaches about it. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Same thing he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth, earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Now, the Bible goes on to say that God will create a new heavens and a new earth. But this earth will be burned up. This is destined to be completely destroyed. So the Bible tells us, don't love the things of this world. If you love the things of the world, then that is enmity towards God. The things of this world are going to perish. Revelation 6, 17 says, for the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand? So that great day of God's wrath. And that great day of God's wrath is spoken of in the tribulation period. That last seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, it's broken up into two, three and a halfs. And we find that in the book of Daniel. We find that in the book of Revelation. And we're going to find out something here in 2 Thessalonians about the middle of the tribulation period as he talks about the Antichrist. So let's see what was happening. Both letters to the Thessalonians were written because there were some misunderstandings. 
that they had about the return of Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine there being any misunderstandings about the second coming of Jesus? In fact, Paul, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all going to sleep, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. So he refers to the rapture as a mystery. No wonder we don't understand it. And I think it's also good from time to time to recognize that this sounds bizarre to the world. That when you tell the world, we're waiting for Jesus to come and take us home to be with him. You mean like kill you? No, we're just going to go in the air, caught up to be with the Lord. And the world goes, okay. <laughs> they allow you guys to vote. All right. I understand it sounds strange, but there are things in the Bible that are true that are strange. And remember that the whole world is unraveling. And right before the rapture of the church, there's got to be some events. There's got to be something that causes us to look up. Because the Bible tells us that we will not, we, we have been saved from the wrath that is to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Romans 5, 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. We've been saved from the wrath to come. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see these things start to happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. So there's, there's going to come something that some event that we're going to start to go, is it close? He could come back at any moment, but I think there's just some clues God gives us as we get to the very end. When you see these things start to happen, look up. It's interesting that he doesn't say, when you see these things start to happen, look for the Antichrist. Figure out who he is, right? And there are a lot, there's a lot of obsession with the Antichrist as well, but never in the Bible are we told to look for the Antichrist. We're told to, we're told to look up and look for Jesus. We aren't told to look for who the Antichrist is because we're going to be gone. Whoever the Antichrist is will become evident right after the tribulation period starts. When Jesus tears, the, the Lamb of God takes the scroll in Revelation and he tears that first seal and the conquering horse, the, conquer, the man who's given to conquer on a white horse, this is the false Christ, this is the Antichrist, is given power to conquer. And that is the start of the tribulation period when the Antichrist comes on the scene. So in verse 1, we see very clearly that they have a misunderstanding. We see that they're thinking, they're believing something that is not true. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And here I think he's making a reference to both, to the coming of Jesus to this earth at the end of the seven-year period, that final return, and to our gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. So somebody has gone into their presence and started to teach them something false and told them, Paul taught this. Paul said this. And Paul says, don't be shaken in spirit or troubled by a word that somebody talked to us and we said this or by a letter. There probably was a letter that was forged by, by someone saying that they were Paul, that the, the rapture had happened, or that they were in the middle of the tribulation period. Perhaps that they missed the rapture. We don't know exactly what they believed. I wish Paul would have laid it out for us. I wish Paul would have understood. We're going to be reading this in Tucson, Arizona in a couple thousand years. It'd be nice to be able to let them know exactly what was happening. But we do know that they are believing something that Paul corrects, and it's troubled them. It has troubled them. And we get an idea what it is here in a moment 
they believe they're in the tribulation period. Because Paul's going to say this day, that day cannot come until this happens. He's going to give them a sign of something that has to happen before that day can come so that they would know you're not in the tribulation period. Remember, some of them have died and they've had heavy persecution. They've given their lives to Christ. They live in a Roman city. Christianity is not sanctioned by Rome and they have had a lot of persecution. And those that have left Judaism have had persecution as well. And so he says in verse 2, not to be shaken in mind or troubled by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, and here it is, as though the day of Christ had come, as though it's already happened, that you guys somehow missed it. There are people today who believe that they've missed it. There are people today who believe that we are in the middle of the tribulation period now. Whenever I, I read or see anything by them, I always think, well, you've got to understand how bad the, the, the tribulation period is going to be. It'd be good just to go back and do a study. It is a day of gloominess. It is a day of darkness. It is a day of terror. It is a day of thick clouds. The Old Testament says over and over again. It is a horrible day of God's wrath. Although there are horrible things happening in the earth today, and you might be able to go to Revelation and find an event and say, this looks like this event, You've got to multiply it by like a hundred times, maybe a thousand times for what it's really going to be like in the tribulation period. So they thought the day of Christ had come. And we're, I'm just going to take it. That's the day of the Lord. The word in the Greek here is Christos, which is Christ, Messiah. It's the Greek word for Messiah. And I'm going to take it that he's doing a play on the day of the Lord, that the day of Christ has come. Some try to say the day of Christ is the rapture. And the day of the Lord is his return. I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying here. In verse 3, remember, let me just elaborate on that a little bit more, if you don't mind. Remember, they're not working off of some kind of a, of a dictionary that they've made for terms. And sometimes we hear one person use a term and another person will use a term. And in our minds, we think they're referring to the same thing. But you've got to look at it in context to determine whether or not the term for Paul and the term for Peter was the same term or whether they're using the term slightly different. Uh, sometimes we act like every term in the Bible is the same all the way across it, although it's written by how many different authors in over a 1,500-year span of time and, and written to different people in different circumstances. And so then in verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you by any means. This is really important because when Jesus was asked by his disciples, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign of your return? Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come saying that they are the Christ. And here Paul says, be careful that no one deceives you. I think when it comes to last days, there can be a lot of deception. I think there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of desire to have new things. There's a lot of people that bring what they believe is the, what the truth is. They might have something unique about themselves and be careful that you're not deceived. Make sure that you're studying. We all have access to the scriptures. We want to know how to approach the word of God. We want to know how to approach it properly, rightly dividing God's word. Well, they had been deceived. And he says, be careful. No one deceives you for that day, the day of Christ for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Now that seems really straightforward but it's not that straightforward. The word in the Greek for falling away is apostasia. We use it for apostasy. 
This is when someone has known God and then has fallen away. You can't have an apostasy unless someone is there first. And so there's a great falling away in the last days. But this word for apostasy simply means departure. And so if you want to translate it, you, you would say that day will not come until the departure. And there is definitely an article in front of this, meaning it's the departure, the falling away. So it's not just there's going to be falling away. People were falling away already. People were apostatizing already. He was saying to them, there's going to be something distinct. There's going to be the apostasia, the departure. Now, I bring that up because there are those who believe that the reference here isn't a reference to a great falling away from the faith, but it's actually talking about the departure of the church. The day of the Lord will not come until there is the departure, the rapture of the church being caught up to be with the Lord. I don't know. I will tell you that I am predisposed to believe that this is the rapture because I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. We've been promised that we won't go through the wrath that is to come. We've been promised in Revelation 3.10 that God's going to keep us from the hour of tribulation coming upon the whole earth. We've been told in Luke 21 to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape all these things. Why would we be told to pray we'd be counted worthy to escape them in the context, by the way, of the tribulation period if we couldn't escape? So when I read something like this, I'm predetermined to go, yeah, that's the rapture. But I realize that that might be wrong. I realize I might be reading what I believe into it. And I want to be careful in handling the Word of God that I handle it properly. So how do we check it out? Well, I don't know that we can check it out all that much, but let me just say this. In the last days, there is a great falling away. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of the evangelist and fulfill your ministry. So people are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them fables. There are many churches that do not teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the, the most watched churches in America, I don't know about South Korea where there's a big revival happening. I, I only know what I see. Do not teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they teach kind of the, the positive. God, you know, God wants good things for you. Let me share. I want to talk to you today about enthusiasm. It's good to be enthusiastic. They're not teaching the gospel. They're not teaching the word of God. And that is a sign that we are living in the last days. Let me also get you to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This uh, 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy both talk about the same thing in chapter 4. Verse 1 of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now again, this is talking about an apostasia. They were in the faith and they left the faith. Okay? In the latter times. So there is going to be this thing in the latter times where people leave the faith. 
It says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. It goes on to say, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which is created by God, which is made to give thanksgiving. And he goes on to talk about it. So the idea that this could be the apostasy or what theologians would call the great falling away, it could be. It very much could be. We are living in a day when people are deconstructing their faith. There are people who believed in Jesus, followed after him, and they are no longer following after him. There are authors of well-known Christian books who are no longer following Christ. They go through a period of doubt and they struggle. I believe that if they genuinely had a relationship with Christ, that Jesus will leave the 99 and will go after them and will bring them back. If they didn't have a genuine relationship with Christ, then let's hope that God touches their heart and moves in their lives. But there are those in the church, even in the roles of leadership, that do not have a genuine relationship with Christ. That should not shock you. It happens. But this could be the great apostasy. Having said that, though, I also want to say that it could be the departure, meaning the rapture of the church. It, it doesn't say. And there's nothing in the context to help us understand. In fact, as we read the context, it looks like actually there's something in the context that would lend to it being the rapture of the church. We'll get to that here momentarily. But here's, what, here's this point. You can't be in the tribulation period because before you're in the tribulation period, there's a departure. It's either a faith or it's of, of Christians. Whatever it is, they knew it. Paul knew it. Paul had talked to them. They clearly understood it. So there's a departure. So you know that you can't be in the tribulation period because the departure hasn't happened. Now, if this deconstructing of faith that's happening in our day is the great departure, then we might be able to go, well, maybe we're about to get into the tribulation period because of that. But then he says something else. And the man of sin is revealed. Let me read that all together. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. The only thing that 2 Thessalonians says has to happen before the tribulation period is the apostasy. That's it. Not that the man of sin has to be revealed. Here's how it goes. Someone comes up to me and says, um, I know you believe in the preacher of rapture, but clearly, and I always love when they say clearly, Clearly, it's post-trib. I always want to say, clearly, it's pre-trib. Let's just argue that back and forth. Clearly post, clearly pre, clearly post. We got to be able to give our arguments, right? We got to be able to say, this is why we believe that the Bible is, is thus. And I would remind you that if you are post-trib and you're here, we're on the same team. We're even premillennialists together. We just believe something different about a seven-year period. You think something's happened seven years later than I do. And we're like, you're a total idiot because you believe that. It's like, Okay, back down just a little bit. It's all right. Um, so they say, well, you know, you believe in the pre-trib, but 2 Thessalonians says the Antichrist has to be revealed first. And my response is always the same. No, it doesn't. Go back and read it. It doesn't say that. The only thing it says has to happen first is the apostasy. Then the Antichrist will be revealed or and the Antichrist will be revealed. I read it then because of later on in the text. Again, there's some context that helps us out with what Paul's saying in the way that he says something in a little, just a little bit from this, this text. 
But it is not saying the Antichrist has to be revealed. The Antichrist isn't revealed until the beginning of the tribulation period. And if Paul is saying that, if Paul's saying, listen, you can't be in the tribulation period because the Antichrist would be revealed. He's just not saying that time can't come first because the Antichrist has to be revealed first. He doesn't say that. But he does say, if you're in the middle of the tribulation period, then you would be able to identify the Antichrist. And you don't know who the Antichrist is. He's the first, that's the first seal. The first seal that is torn is the Antichrist coming out on a white horse, given power to conquer. That's the way you know you're in, the, you're in the tribulation period. So for the people today who say, well, we are in the tribulation period, you just can't see it. Where's the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? He will be revealed very early on, if not even right away in the tribulation period. I am very confident through the Word of God that we are not in the tribulation period. I'm also confident that here it doesn't say the Antichrist is going to come first. And so then it goes on to give us some information about this guy. So Antichrist means opposed to Christ or instead of Christ. He is a false Christ. The nation of Israel is going to receive him as their Messiah. We really don't know whether he's going to be from Europe, whether he's going to be from Rome, whether he's got some Jewish blood in him. There are some suggestions in the Bible about him. We're told that he doesn't regard women. So some believe that he's homosexual. We're told that um, he's given a, a great and prideful mouth that he speaks great things. So he's, he's, a, he's a good speech maker. He, he speaks really well. So when people would tell me Trump's the Antichrist, I'd say, have you heard him speak? I don't know. I, I don't know. Don't get mad at me, all right? I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm just saying. The Antichrist has this ability to be able to, to speak in such a way to sway crowds. And, and here it says that the man of sin is revealed. The first thing we're told about him is he's the man of sin. That's what he is. He's a man of sin because he's a narcissist. He's a man of sin because he's all about himself. He's all about the power of the devil. He's all about the power of the false prophet who will support him later on. And then it says that he's the son of perdition. There's only one other person in the Bible that's called the son of perdition. It's Judas Iscariot. Because he had such a great potential being one of the 12 and he wasted it. And this Antichrist has such potential. He's a charismatic world leader. Our world is headed towards a one world global government. I don't know if you see any of that happening now, but it's definitely happening. They are, they're, they're moving away from nationalism to a world power. There's things going on behind the scenes. Also, you know, the Bible talks about in the last days, it gives a list uh, of, of things. People that have been lovers of themselves and lovers of money and, and, and all of those things are happening. When you consider today the propaganda that is on its way towards children, teaching children that there is no difference between or that you can't figure out male or female yet, the new Batman who is bisexual, the new Lego toys that aren't made for boys or girls because they, they want them to be able to decide, a lot of rhetoric in California, which shocking, I know, that there's rhetoric in California, but a lot of rhetoric in California about not telling kids when they get into school, not calling them boys or girls. They're, they're in, in certain school districts in California, you can't call them boys and girls. Boys line up here, girls line up here. You can't do that because you've got to let them be able to decide. 
And if they want to be called by some other, in some other way, then you've got to call them they or them or call a he, her. That's happening in our world today. And there's some big struggles going on over it. There's some big battles going on over it. And I think all of these things fit into the last days. We are living in those last days. And um, he's a son of perdition. He also, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshiped. He presents himself as God. When he comes on the scene at first, he makes nice with the nation of Israel. Israel, either in the beginning of the tribulation period or right before it, there is a, a, the Gog and Magog battle. There is a coalition of nations that is mentioned in Ezekiel 38 that come against Israel. And there may be a couple of those nations which were not sure what Ezekiel was referencing, but the vast majority of them we know. And today, every one of them we can identify. There's a couple that are questionable. There, there's, there's a couple of them you go, I don't know if this is Turkey or if this is, is, is a, a portion of Afghanistan. There's some of these areas. But what we do know is that all of them we can identify are now self-proclaimed haters of Israel. Every one of them. Libya, Kush, which is the Sudan, um, Turkey. Uh, and, and it's interesting where you look at one and go, it either means this or this. Both of them, in some cases, are anti-Israel. And the Bible says that they will come down against Israel. And it makes one of the references that I believe could be one of the references of the United States in, in prophecy. And the young lions say, what are you doing? In, in fact, it says the area of Saudi Arabia and the young lions say, what are you doing? Saudi Arabia and the United States are in a proxy war in Syria with Russia and Iran. You understand that, right? And, and Syria has been devastated. And there's some prophecies about Damascus as well that will come to pass. And the refuge, millions in refugee camps in Syria today. Absolutely horrifying, the conditions that these people are living in. And Saudi Arabia and the young lions, England is the lion, we're, we could be the young lions, all right? I realize it's kind of a weak connection. I understand that, all right? I'm just saying it might be. And we say to these armies that come against Israel, what are you doing? In other words, if that's us and, and Saudi Arabia, which now has at least a verbal support for Israel, they recognized Israel as a nation. Don't do anything. But God fights for them and they defeat that army. And the Antichrist comes on the scene and, and probably rebuilds the temple. I think we can connect the dots enough that the Antichrist is the one who moves and rebuilds the temple. That, that may be how he makes the peace treaty because the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. That's why, again, don't mean to talk about Trump that much, but remember when Trump, Trump was talking about a 10-year deal with um, Israel and people were going, Antichrist, see, Antichrist, it's 10 years, not seven. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe they'll revise it by the end and it will be seven years. But... In the beginning of that, he'll build the temple for them. And maybe, I'm just, I'm just firing away here, all right? I'm just telling you what's going on in my mind. Maybe he makes a deal with the Palestinians so that they can build the temple and the Palestinians get something out of it. Palestinians get their own nation and they get a part of the temple and their the temple mount. And they're able to build their temple on it. It's interesting. In Revelation, it says there's a wall that divides the profane from the holy. 
that is built on the temple, on the Latter-day Temple. It's different than, than what it was before. And maybe they share the Temple Mount and the Dome of the Rock doesn't have to be destroyed. Maybe it's the Dome of the Spirit where, you see, we don't know where Solomon's Temple was. We, if we could excavate the, the Temple Mount, we would know, but we can't do it. So we don't know where it was. It might not be where the Dome of the Rock is. In fact, if you go to the East Gate that we know was the East Gate during the days of Solomon, and you go directly from it, you come to the Dome of the Spirits, which has Moriah bedrock under it. In other words, the, the, the Temple Mount comes up and butts up against that small section that has bedrock in it. When I go up on the Temple Mount with people, I like to bring them over to the Dome of the Spirits and say, you're looking at bedrock in Mount Moriah. The Ark of the Covenant sat on bedrock on Mount Moriah. And maybe, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying maybe it was the Dome of the Spirits. And maybe that's where the temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist will do that. Um, so it says that he, he lifts himself now in the middle of it, right? He commits the abomination of desolation and the false prophet gives power for a statue to speak and he puts up his own statue and he's worshiped as God. And so Paul's given us some information here. And remember how early this is. This is 52, 53 that he's writing this in the first century. And he's writing about the Antichrist. The book of Revelations won't be written until sometime almost the 90s, 40 years later after Paul writes this. He goes on to say, so he sits as God in the temple of God. So the temple has to be rebuilt, showing himself that he is God. And by the way, when Paul wrote this, the temple was there. People will make a reference to the temple needing to be rebuilt, but that's because the Antichrist hasn't gone there yet. So the temple was destroyed after this, but Paul I don't know whether Paul understood that that temple was going to be destroyed. He says, do you, don't, uh, do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Which is really interesting to me because Paul was with them for three weeks. And in three weeks, he's like, I told you about the Antichrist. I told you about him sitting up in the temple. I told you about that. And today people say that we're stretching it when it comes to prophecy. I don't know that we are. If Paul shows up at a church, wins them to Christ and says, listen, I got to tell you some things about the end of the world. I need to tell you about this Antichrist, this guy that's going to rise up. If Paul felt that he should share it to them, I think we should talk about it today. And then in verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Now he says, you know what is restraining. And here again, I'd like to talk to Paul. We don't. We don't know. They, you know, they know, but we don't know. And so there's controversy about what is restraining. Some believe it is the Holy Spirit and that before the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will be taken away. I don't believe that's possible because people get saved after it. You have 144,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel who are evangelists and I, the Holy Spirit is still working. I don't believe that. But I do believe it's the Holy Spirit in the church that we are the restrainer. Jesus said, you are light and you are salt. Light shines for Christ and salt stops corruption. And we are chosen by God to do that. And I know you guys have had some of those experiences where someone's doing something and they realize you're there. They're like, sorry. And I'm always like, D -d don't worry about me. They don't usually catch what I'm saying when I say that. When they use God's name in vain and say, sorry. And I say, don't worry about me. I'm saying, I'm not the one you got to worry about. The one you're taking his name in vain is the one you got to worry about, not me. But we restrain. 
And, and I, I gave you some things that we restrain earlier. But we restrain all kinds of things. When we are out of the way, first of all, the world's going to uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Can't believe those Christians are gone. Good riddance to you. I'm glad the aliens got them. It's probably what they're going to say. So he says, you know what restrains. And then he says that he may be revealed in his own time. Um, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And I think, again, this is a reference of the Holy Spirit in the church, the work of the Spirit in the church. And that work of the church will be done, and so he will be taken out of the way, still working, still having people get saved. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Again, notice the way that he says it. When he who restrains is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. There will be a departure, and the lawless one will be, there will be a departure first, and the lawless one will be revealed. He who restrains will be taken away, and then the lawless one will be revealed. That makes me think that context tells us it's at least possible that the apostasia is the departure of the church. I'm not going to draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to argue with anybody. I'm going to say it can be either one. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, going to make a stand over it. But I believe there is some legitimacy in thinking that because of the context. It goes on to say then, um, in verse 8, And then the lawless one who is revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's the end of the Antichrist. He may think he's all that. He may be all that. But the Lord's going to consume him with the breath at his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. We see that in the book of Revelation. It's the dragon that gives him his power. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. And the false prophet helps him to, to bring these lying wonders. That's Revelation chapter 13. You've got a first and second beast that are revealed. The first is the Antichrist. The second is the, the false prophet. And then verse 10. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. So these are people that have rejected the truth, and they will perish with the Antichrist. It says that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. The, the delusion may already be here. I, I don't know where I stand with what the delusion is right now. But I, I do believe it could be evolution. I, I, I've often said, look, I, young earth, old earth, to some degree, I, I lean young earth, okay? But to some degree, I wouldn't be shocked to find out that God created the earth uh, a long time ago and then created man on the earth. To, to some degree, I wouldn't be shocked for that. I lean young earth. But evolution, there's no way. Evolutionists today are blowing the whistle that evolution can't be true. They're writing books saying life is far too complex. Even Darwin said, if the cell is complicated, then, then my theory can't be true. Nobody reverted it when they found out that the cell was far more complicated than they ever thought that it was. There's just not enough time for our bodies to become what our bodies have become. There's not enough time for our eyes to evolve into what they have evolved into. There's just not enough time. Plus, there's all kinds of things that fight against it. And, and, and when I say there are evolutionists who say that, what they are saying is not they believe in God. They are evolutionists who say evolution as it is taught today cannot be true. 
They believe that they have to find other keys to make evolution true. They are not abandoning evolution. They are simply saying, as it is taught, it is not true. It cannot be true. And I love that scientists are saying this. When you talk to a scientist who believes in evolution, they're just like, evolution is true. What are you, an idiot? You don't believe it? Well, how come there's really smart people like other scientists who say that this is Darwin's little black box, that this isn't true? Now, I don't know what the delusion is. The delusion may be something else. I believe it may be evolution, that they should believe a lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe in the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. The condemnation of those that have pleasure in unrighteousness instead of obeying the truth. Then he turns to them and says, but, and, and we're going to cover more of this next week. We'll start here. I just want to read this and finish up the chapter, all right? But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That God chose those who would believe and God knew that these Thessalonians would believe and he chose them. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, this is the verse that is used by Catholicism to say that tradition should hold the weight of Scripture. When you talk to someone who is Catholic, and remember, Catholics believe everything Orthodox that evangelicals believe. They believe everything. But they will believe things that are different because they have tradition as an add-on to Scripture. So they will pray for Mary to pray for them. They will pray to the saints. When you talk to them, you really don't get anywhere because they say tradition tells us this. And Paul said, hold fast to the traditions which you were taught. He goes on to say, whether by word or by epistle. I don't think Paul meant the traditions. I don't think that Paul meant the traditions of the church. He meant the traditions he taught them. That he, had, and remember, he's an apostle. He's giving them the word of God. And if ever you have a disagreement with someone who's Catholic, then remember, you're going to have to talk about the tradition thing. You would think it would be easy because you go outside in the Bible, but you got to deal with tradition. And so that's, that's where I go when I talk to them. And sometimes you just got to go, well, you see tradition as an authority and I don't. So we can just disagree on this. But you believe that Jesus is the Savior. You believe that he rose from the dead. You, you believe that, that God brought salvation into the world by him. And as long as you don't believe that you're saved by being a part of the Catholic Church, then you're okay. If you think that's your salvation, then there's some trouble. If you believe and trust in Christ, then you're good. But this passage, and we'll talk more about this next week, whether by word or by epistle, he says. And so Paul says these traditions are in the, in the word of God because Paul wrote scripture. Even Peter made reference to Paul's writings as scripture, which is crazy to think about it because they are contemporaries. I can't even imagine saying of anybody, there are scriptures and people twist them because they're hard to understand. And Paul's writings are, but Peter said of Paul that his writings were scripture. Verse 16, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God and Father and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, which is comfort, okay? He's given us everlasting comfort, a good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So after talking about the Antichrist and all that's coming, may God establish you, may God comfort you where you are because these people were all upset because they were believing that they were in the middle of the tribulation period. 
And after revealing to him, you can't be in the tribulation period, he's like, okay, now chill out. May God be with you, bring you grace, bring you peace, be you, the, every good work that God has for you. And in the last chapter, he's going to tell them how they're supposed to live while they're waiting. Because some of them had quit their job because they thought they were in the tribulation period. Some of them were like, Jesus is coming back too soon. I'm not going to work. And Paul's going to say, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that kind of settles it. All right, stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for revealing these truths to us within the scriptures. We thank you that we can take a look at what Paul said about the departure being first and the man of sin being revealed. And Lord, we thank you that we can know we're not in the tribulation period, but we believe that we are living at a time where we are marching closely to that day. And I pray that we would live our lives in such a way that you would be, be honored by our lives, glorified, honored, that people around us would see us and see Christ. Help us to do a good job of representing you to a lost and perishing world. Go before us into the lives of friends, family, coworkers, and acquaintances. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.